This morning, we are actually, we're going to be preparing ourselves for communion, and the sermon is really a preparation for communion. And so, if you would, turn with me to the scripture that we read so often in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23, and we'll read about 9, 10 verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. I am reading this morning, I don't usually do this, but I'm reading from the New Living Translation, but I'm reading this just for its readability and for how it flows. You might have a different translation and that's okay. Verse 23, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself, Paul said. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body which is given for you, do this to remember me, or in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat and drink this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. I love the way the New Living Translation says that. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Oh, it's packed with a lot of things, right? And I'm not going to try to tear apart every single phrase and whatnot. But this morning, I want to link this to something that Paul said also just a couple chapters back, if you have your Bibles open, to chapter 10 and verse 16 and 17. And listen to what Paul says there. Before, of course, in chapter 11, he gives the instructions for the Lord's Supper. But he says in chapter 10 and verse 16, he says, When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread. Aren't we sharing? I'm sorry, showing that we are one body. Showing that we are one body body I'll just leave it there I'll be, s- slow down Bob rein that thought in when we come to the Lord's table as we are this morning in just a little while here and we do that at New Hope Chapel of course as you know once a month on the first Sunday of the month is traditionally or that is our pattern or time of when we partake in the Lord's Supper some churches do it every month That's great. Nothing wrong with that. Some do it every other week, whenever they do it. But the point is that we need to do this regularly. And that's what Paul is saying here. In fact, he says, as often as we get together, as often as we do this and we partake in the Lord's Supper, we are announcing to the world or proclaiming the Lord's death. 
what he did on the cross for us. When we come to the Lord's table, when we come together as God's people, we need to do something, and it's very simple, and yet it's very difficult at the same time. Because we come in, and we're so, we're so rushed. I don't know how to say this except to say it the way it is. We run around like our heads are cut off in our world nowadays. We do. And I've said this before, but we do. And when it's Communion Sunday, we often, it's like an, I've said this before, it's almost like it's an afterthought. You know, it's at the end of the service, and like, all right, let's get the cup from behind the seat, open it up, and let's take 10 seconds, and we eat it, we drink it, and we just run out, and we don't take in what is going, can I tell you what we're doing, what I believe we're doing, and I'll share this just sincerely from what I really feel in my heart of hearts, that we often do, more often than not, We are just players, we're not partakers. I mean that. We're players, we're not partakers. Because it's become this rote ritual that we go through. It's the first Sunday of the month, at the end of the service, maybe before the sermon. We'll do this like two-minute thing. We're going to eat and drink. and Oh yeah, I'm part of the body of Christ and i got to do that and I go through. Rather than it being some kind of a productive participation that we're involved in, it's just this rote ritual. I get caught in that sometimes too. Confession. I'm not proud of that. I'm not. But we, it's so easy to do that. And we don't take time and we don't process and examine and look. And that's why I think it's really important that this morning we take a look at communion. And it's and, and it really a fourfold look. Four places we've got to look this morning if communion is really going to be meaningful to us. And we're not just players, but we're partakers. And we can really receive the blessing and the joy that we should get out of this. I hate to put it that way, but, th- but we should. God wants us to. First of all, the first place that we need to look is that we need to look back. We need to look back. Now, why am I saying we need to look back? Because I could, I could go on forever and ever and ever about How many things historically we need to reflect on to understand why we're doing this today in the first place? Drinking of this cup and eating of the bread. Why we do it in the first place. But I'll just go back really quickly to looking back at the Jewish history, at the Jews' history, right? And, and, And that we should remember when we look back first, the Passover, I'm not going to go through the entire thing of the Passover and what happened there. It's loaded, my friends. Brothers and sisters, it is filled with incredible things. And in Exodus chapter 12, we know what happens. And so that first look back starts with looking at the Passover today. You remember the story. In Exodus chapter 12 and before 12, actually, God's people are slaves in Egypt, are they not? Hundreds of years working hard, mistreated, whatever you want to call it, mocked and not given the right to worship their their one true God the way that God wanted them to. But they still did, right? Many of them, some, but they did. But they they were in bondage. They were enslaved to the Egyptians and serving them. And then God is going to set them free by when he raises up and he, and he sets in their midst the deliverer Moses. And you remember the ten plagues? Well, you don't remember them. Remember reading about them? I hope we never have to remember 10 plagues. 
You know about the ten plagues recorded in scriptures, right? And the ninth plague is that plague that there's this darkness that comes upon all of the earth, right? All upon all of Egypt. And the remarkable and amazing thing is, and there's something there to learn, a little tidbit before we get to the tenth plague, and it's this, is that it says the, the Bible records that while darkness was everywhere in Egypt, it says that God's people enjoyed the light as usual. And I couldn't help thinking about something. I couldn't help thinking about John's words in, in this first epistle, 1 John chapter 1. And it says that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him and with one another, right? And, there's, and we're good. And yet, Jesus said in John chapter 8 that I am the light of the world, but then he says in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world, and then he lives in you. And so wherever we are, no matter how dark things are, and no matter how much darkness falls upon this world, which, is it dark or what? Yet, I'm in this darkness, and I'm getting that light. The light of God shines not only upon me, but it's in, he's in me, and he's shining out of me, at least that's how it's supposed to be. And if it's not, well, I'll, I'll just leave it there. I'll leave it there. What a blessing. What a great thing. And it would freak, and it freaked everybody out. Pharaoh and all those that were involved, they just it, building upon all these, 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 these plagues that God sent as, as right as an affront to all of their, their, their gods that they worshipped in Egypt that were false gods. They weren't real. They were imaginary, made up. And here's the one true God who's controlling all of this. And he makes the light completely dark. And the sun is dark. And it's dark. Dark, dark, dark. But God's people have the light as usual. And then the tenth plague comes. And God gives some instruction, and this is where the Passover starts. And he, start, he says, I am going to come, and the angel of death is going to come. I'm paraphrasing, but I'll give you the quick. And he, and he's, he says, I, every firstborn is going to be destroyed unless, unless, you take that sacrifice, you take, that, I've, that I've instructed, and he gives specific instructions, and you take that blood, you take those hyssop, you take the hyssop, and you dip it in, and you, that hyssop, that little bunch of that herb, Right? It's like a minty kind of thing. And, and all together, and you use it as a paintbrush. Right? And it's amazing because even in Scripture, historically, if you read Psalm 51 and many other places in Scriptures, hyssop is something that is symbolically symbolizes cleansing. And yet, it's the blood that cleanses of Christ, right? But it's the means by which, and, you, and here's the, the brush on the doorposts of the house. God says, you have to follow these instructions. You've got to have that blood across the doorposts of your heart, uh, uh, um, uh, homes. Otherwise, the angel of death will come. But if you do, you'll be spared. And God's people were faithful. And they obeyed the instructions of God. There was a sacrifice. There was bloodshed. And then there was the painting, if you will, of the blood on the doorposts of the home. Just like the home of our hearts where Jesus' blood is applied and we are cleansed and we are protected from the angel of death, from God's wrath in the end. There are so many applications. It was a type of what was to come and what we're to look forward to that we are protected and preserved by the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, the ultimate lasting and sufficient sacrifice. And Passover starts this way. I mean, really, in a way, the angel passes over, if you will. And then immediately after that, there's something that happens. 
Pharaoh says, you know what? That's it. I've had enough. Get out. Go and worship your God. Get out of my land. And then they go to the Red Sea, and we know what happens, and God takes them out. And they go quickly, right? They go after the sacrifices made. Then the bread is unleavened. They're doing this whole process, right? And then they cross the Red Sea. Passover, there's so much more there. But it, its roots are in Jewish history and how God spared his people, saved his people from the angel of death. And we are saved from, from death and, 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 and the result of sin in our lives because of what Jesus did and sprinkling our hearts with his blood by faith. You know, second, we look back in history to Numbers 21. Uh, just a little, little piece of history. Where we see another picture here of what communion is all about. And why we look back. Because after they are set free, which is a picture of our lives, we go through, and now we're heading toward the promised land. And then we're, we're heading home, right? And we're going... And we have struggles, we have issues, we have attitudes, we have complaints, we have criticisms, we have all kinds of stuff that we bring to the table, and a lot of it is not good, positive, and healthy. Sinful, oftentimes. And in Numbers 21, the people are complaining against Moses and getting frustrated. And, and the Bible says they're, they're, they're rising up against Moses. And, then it, and as a result, the Bible records, so God sent poisonous snakes among his people. Why? Because the people are whining against their God-ordained leader. Don't read into that too much. Don't make me out to be Moses or Pastor Dan or any of the leaders. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not going there. If you think you're going in your mind, stop yourself. All right? But there is a principle there. The more you complain about leaders and about authorities and about other people in your life, good things don't happen in your life. I'm telling you right now. Because if that's all you do, I'm, I'm going to say you're going to be hard-pressed to find a lot of gratefulness or thankfulness in your life. And you'll be looking around always finding someone else to criticize or to be upset with or complain about. Always finding something. That's what God's people were doing en route. God says, I'm sending poisonous snakes. And they're getting bitten by these. And you know what the remedy was? God tells Moses, take a bronze serpent. Put it up on a pole. And anybody who looks at that, all they got to do is look. And it's, it's the idea that you know what the instruction is, but in your mind, your mind is telling you, your natural mind is saying, that's the most absurd thing ever. I'm full of poisonous venom, and I'm getting weak, and my eyes are closing, and, I'm, fall, and I'm, I'm, I'm laying there, I have no strength, and it's really affecting me. I'm envisioning kind of like this crazy thing. If you've ever, um, I forgot, uh, Kings of Pain is this show on TV. And these guys, I don't know if it's Discovery or History Channel, one of them, and they, what they do intentionally is they go to the most venomous creatures in the world and they intentionally let them bite them, both of them, and they measure how much pain they felt. Yeah, pretty stupid, right? Literally. It really is. They've done all kinds of things. I've seen some of them. And they'll take these and they'll go and they'll stink. And they're like, ah! And they're all freaking out. I feel like it's an act half the time. But anyway, I'm sure it really does hurt. You know? And then it swells up within minutes and they're showing it. That's what was happening with these people. With God's people. These sinning complainers and whiners. And God says, you know what? If, if you're going to be healed of the venomous poison that's in, the, and the, that's in, your, in your bloodstream, 
the sin there. It's gonna, if there's remedy for that, you've got to do this by faith. You've got to believe that it's God's word and that God instructed Moses, your leader, and said, look at that and you'll be whole. And those who did, boom. It's like swelling's gone, no more screaming, no more writhing in pain, no more weakness. They have clear vision now. They're all good. They're healed. They're cured. But for those who didn't, there, 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 was, there was death. Anyone who looked. And you know what? There's a perfect... Jesus himself said in John chapter 3, when we look back in communion historically, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, John 3, 14 and 15, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I think there's a connection. When Jesus quotes and references a historical event that has to do with salvation from the sting of sin, of death, if you will, right? The serpents. And that there's salvation from that. There's a cure for that. He says, I am going to be raised so that anybody who believes, just turn your eye of faith and you believe, you will be made Whole, you'll be saved, you'll be healed in your soul. Then, of course, we know John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. Right after that. But we forget about what was right before that oftentimes, don't we? And then we forget what's right after John 3, 16. For God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but to save it. We forget about that, too. Third, after Numbers 21, third, and one more. We look to the cross. I'm jumping way ahead, right? And there's other things in the sacrificial system that we can connect. But we go to the cross. That's the essence of what this is all about right here. This cup that we have here with this wrapper. It's all about the cross. In the church I grew up in, on State Road, just on the outskirts of Cleveland, just outside Cleveland proper. And I remember going there, and there's this little church. And on on the front wall in the sanctuary... And in Ukrainian and in English, written there like this, like kind of like, you know, what's the word? Like, you know, kind of bowed the words. It says, it said, we preach Christ crucified. And every time we, and it's like, I can see it in my mind like I'm still sitting there. Because I saw it every single time for about 20 years of my life until we moved into our new church, that we, a bigger church that they, they had bought. Every single time I went to church, we preach Christ crucified. Why? Why? I mean, you could put all kinds of scripture, but that was what they chose. Why was it there? Why is it there? Because we, it, it was, it was we're reminded of the Lord's sacrifice and how he gave himself unselfishly and completely for the atonement of our sins. And the marvelous thing and the amazing thing about that is that we preach Christ crucified is because, like, one of my favorite scriptures, as you know, is Romans 5.8, that he did this all while we were still sinners. In John 15.13, Jesus says, There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. No greater love. And Jesus did that as the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. We are reminded of the power of the cross, not just his sacrifice, but the power of the cross. That's why that was in my home church. We preach Christ crucified. Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 
1 and verse 18 to 25. And I'm, I'm going to read this because it's, and I'm going to skip a couple of verses in the middle. But the message of the cross, Paul said, is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Verse 21, since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world will never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. He used this foolish idea of a bronze serpent on a pole so that people could be healed from the poison bite. He used this foolish idea that if you would take the blood and you would put it on the doorposts, the angel of death would pass over you. And I'm sure there were some who tested God and said, yeah, right, that's the most ridiculous thing I ever said, you ever said. And when they woke up that next day or in the middle of the night, all they did was scream in horror because they were disobedient. I'm not here to scare you. It's the truth. It's the truth. It is foolish to the Jews, Paul says, who ask for signs from heaven. And it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ is crucified or was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Love it. We preach Christ crucified. And we preach Christ crucified every time we partake. That is the history we look back to. The cross. And it all starts from Passover. Secondly, we look back, but we look within. Look inside. If you look back and you realize what God was doing all along to save his people, his plan of redemption and salvation, and then you look at the cross and you realize what Jesus did, you've got to look within as well into your own heart of hearts. Your thoughts, but your heart, deep inside your heart. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, and I already read it earlier in the beginning of the sermon, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. He ought to. doesn't say, if that Sunday you feel like it and you're just a player, not a partaker, you can examine yourself. He says you ought to. It's almost like saying you must. You've got to do it. You've got to examine yourself before you eat and drink. The second look is, is in this presence, right? The time we're in now and it's within. And here and now, listen, alone. Alone with God. In silence. You know why? So that He can structure our thoughts and not you or not me. Listen. We sometimes have music playing in the background during communion. We've done that once in a while or whatever. People, we can do different things. But there's nothing like silence where all it is is your thoughts and God. 
And you can't be distracted by the words, whether you're blessed by them or they take you off of what we're here for to partake in or whether you're there to, 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 to whatever. It's, 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 that's it. God and you, and it's just silence. It's you and God face to face, heart to heart. And God starts looking in there and you start looking in. And then it's God who begins, the Holy Spirit who begins pricking and prompting and directing your thoughts. Not some song, not somebody else's thoughts, not somebody else's words to you. It's just you and God. That's how the examining ourselves should take place. Not being distracted, not being, but me and God. You know, we start by looking at ourselves in the mirror of God's word. Don't take, don't take the mirror to someone else without you taking a good, long, and deep look at yourself first. Don't. Please don't do that. Don't. You're going to miss it, and you're going to be a player in the end. And in fact, you'll think you're a player for God, and you'll try to take God's place. Be careful. Look in the mirror. And look at yourself. It's so easy. Because again, full transparency, I'm guilty of that too. Where it's so easy to judge someone else based on my standard and my preferences. So let me ask you a question. What do you see in the mirror when you look at yourself? What do you see in the mirror when you look at yourself? What do you see in the mirror? Oh, yeah, I'm perfect. I keep the law perfectly. I love everyone. I'm awesome. I'm good to go. Yeah, I look good, man. I'm all right. I don't think there's ever a time that I've looked in the mirror and I haven't found a rogue hair somewhere by my ear. (laughs) Sorry. Or some kind of a weird, you know, little unblemish on the side of my face due to too much oil and dirt and whatever, and then I got to take care of it. There's always something. I'm not perfect. I don't have perfect skin. I don't have perfect eyes. My eyebrows are weird. If I didn't clean them up, I'd have a unibrow. You can relate, right? We've got things we've got to address when we look in the mirror. And so James says in chapter 1, verse 22 and 24, he instructs us, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, and you forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard then God will bless you for doing it. What are we doing with our lives? What are you doing with your lives? How are we living? Are we striving for holiness? Do we put Jesus first and center in our lives? Are we totally committed to him? 
I can ask many more questions, but they're for me, so I'll reserve them for me. Let's truly examine ourselves. Look deep into our hearts, and let's heed what the Apostle Paul says that we ought to do. And then let's heed what James says, and we look into the mirror. Don't forget what it pointed out, and take care of it. So be honest. Look in the mirror, but then you got to be honest. Because when you're honest, when you're honest, it will lead to confession. Oh yeah, I do have that rogue hair. Then what? Then you got to change something about that. Then it's called repentance in the spiritual, right? Then there'll be, there's no repentance without confession. You confess and then you change your ways. You acknowledge something's not right and clean and then you make an about face or you, you, you take that thing out. You make a change. And that's called repentance. And when there's repentance, then you know what happens? Then there's reconciliation. And that reconciliation is not just one way. It absolutely must be with God and with his children, your brothers and your sisters. And maybe, just maybe, maybe you're having a hard time reconciling or I have a hard time reconciling and I know in my own life it's because I haven't really repented because I really haven't confessed the real thing but I've kind of shrouded it with like this pseudo genuine confession. I say it in part but not totally because I don't really want to admit it. And that I'm still not right with God and others. I've been there. God wants us to acknowledge our sins and humbly ask for forgiveness and we got to look within. Thirdly, we have to look around. To look around. I'm looking around. I can see all you because I'm up here, right? But I, I'm looking around. And, and Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. The third look is to the brothers and sisters around us. We give thanks to God for our Christian family. oh man, maybe this is a place that we need to like really stop and like we can't partake today. Maybe we shouldn't have communion Sunday today. Do you give thanks to God for your Christian family? Because they're a blessing? Because they're an encouragement? Because, yes, they're also a pain in the butt. I said it. I don't care. Do you thank God for that? And, and they're a pain in different ways. Because they're either calling you out or they're, they're encouraging you or they're, they're, they're pushing you. Do you thank God for a Christian family? You know, Cohen and Sharon... In our house, they like to put together puzzles, jigsaw puzzles. Who likes to do jigsaw puzzles? All right, oh, there's a lot of you. I don't mind, but for some reason I get bored. I don't know why. That's, hey, it is what it is. So this summer it's been hot and humid. So they're inside, and so on the coffee table, they, they, you know, bigger coffee table, they take out these 500-piece puzzles and whatever, and they'll spread them all out, and they have a system of how they do it, and they'll put these puzzles together. And it's an incredible thing because it's all in the box. This is an amazing analogy to how this relates to God and you and me, and I'll get there in a second. They're all in the box, and on top of that box, you see the picture, right? 
And inside the box, there are 500 pieces. You open the box and you see what it's supposed to look like, then all it is is all jumbled up. Then you throw it on the table and you're like, yep, that's a beautiful scene. What do you have to do? Got to separate, separate the pieces. Your system might be do the border first, get like colors. What I, just people have different methods, right? And you start putting them together, and no pieces, no two pieces are the same. Well, there might. I mean, I don't know, because it's there is an algorithm for how they cut these things and whatever. I get it, but they're, generally they're all different, right? The thing is that as much as it's all jumbled and as much as it looks like a mess, every single piece fits to gather when it's in the right place. God had this amazing plan. You know what? He saw you before the foundations of the world. God had a plan. He saw. He he made that puzzle. He made that picture on that box. And he knew every piece inside that box. And then there's something called history or his story, that's really what it is. History is his story. And he had it all planned along. And he, it's, this is in time. These pieces are on the table being put together right now. And he already knows what it's going to look like in the end. He already had that determined a long time ago. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of his bride one day coming home and being with him at the banquet feast. And that's what that jigsaw puzzle looks like. And it's big. And it's billions of pieces, potentially. I don't know. God knows. Definitely millions upon millions of pieces. Everyone's so different. And God, throughout history, putting together this amazing jigsaw puzzle. That's why you're here. That's why you can thank God. And in fact, listen, every piece belongs. And in fact, God knew it all along. And now, throughout history, He's putting it together. If you are born again... If you belong to God, you are part of that jigsaw puzzle. You fit. You're part of the body of Christ. You're purposed to glorify God with a specific function in that puzzle or in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 is all about that. And you have no out. Even if you're just a toenail. Or you're that rogue hair on my ear. Whatever it is. I'm just saying every part of the body has a part, a purpose, and God has a plan for it. You are not, an, you are not alone. You're not, no man is an island. We've heard that. We need each other. I'm not going to repeat prior sermons. We need each other. We look around and we understand there's one loaf. We all partake. We're all part of this body. Jesus is the head. And we fit together Because of God's call and plan, period. So thank God. Finally, and quickly, we look ahead. We look around, but then we look to the future. We look ahead. We look outside of what we know right now is time and everything that's happening into the future. And and, and I believe it's it's the near future that Jesus is coming soon. And we're going to have the opportunity, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.26, that we do this as often as we do until he comes. Until he comes. And he's coming. And every time we partake, and remember, we're closer, that much closer to being together. Are we looking forward to the time when he will come again and we will have communion with our Lord in his kingdom. 
Are we looking forward to his coming with joy or with fear? Maybe it's joyful fear. Like, whoa, but yeah. We, this is what's going to happen. We, the saints of God, will be perfect. Yep, I said it. We're going to be perfect. You're going to be perfect. Hard to imagine, hard to believe, because you look in the mirror. But we're going to be perfect. John, he, John said in chapter 3, verse 2, in his epistle, he said that we'll see him as he is and we'll be just like him as he is. That's what he says. I'm, I'm, that's what he says. We will see him face to face. There will be no more sin and no need to examine ourselves. Especially at that, that last supper in the kingdom. We're doing that now, but there's going to be no more need to examine ourselves. But while we're heading there, we examine ourselves. And, as, and listen, the other thing is, the jigsaw puzzle will be complete. You will see every single piece that God ever had in mind to make this amazing jigsaw puzzle, and it's all going to fit together. We'll be right before his feet, at the table, eating at the marriage supper of the Lamb. There will be no more strife, frustration, and separation among the pieces, because that doesn't happen among God's people. There's not going to be any more of that. There's not going to be any more of that. And all we will do is worship the Lamb slain before the foundations of the world forever and ever. And I can't wait. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, I want you to take that cup in front of you. Look Oh, anyone need gluten-free uh, uh, um, cup? Stacy has a couple here. The ushers will, uh, will serve you the gluten-free. Look, as we come to this point at the conclusion of our service here, I'll wait till everyone's served. It looks like some are still getting served with the gluten-free. I want to encourage you I want to encourage you, if I could have your attention, just look, eyes up here if you could. Look to the past. Remember, we're, we're announcing the Lord's death, and there's a history to that, historically. Look within your heart. Look around you. And after you draw from God's grace to make things right, you can look to the future with joyful anticipation you can so here's what we're going to do because we absolutely hate it a lot of us hate it so this is what we're going to do we're going to take one minute a full minute of silence to do these four looks to take these four looks and then we'll partake so let's bow our heads in silence Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 29, Jesus said, as they were eating, the scripture says, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it. 
For this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until that day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's eat of the bread together. Let's drink the cup together. Father, continue to search our hearts. Help us to look into the mirror of your word. Holy Spirit, I ask that as we leave this morning, we would be challenged, God, to just uh, be reminded of, of our need to not just during communion, but, Lord, regularly to look back, to look within, to look around us, and to look to the future, Lord. And help us, Lord, to always remember that your arms are wide open, your faithfulness is so great, and your love for us will never end. So, Lord, we pray that as we go, we would represent you well. Help us to be people who are holy, who are not only living in the light, but are shining the light in this dark world. Help us to be those who share the gospel and are bearers and givers of hope through Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.